I start at page 62. Rejection of life to come. This is no place to discuss the Islamic philosophy about life after death in detail, but let it suffice here to mention that, according to Islam, the way we lead our lives here on earth influences our souls in a manner as sometimes certain diseases of a pregnant mother influence her child in the embryonic stage. The child may be so congenitally handicapped that it may prove to be a hell for it to live with its disabilities amongst healthy children in a state of utter helplessness. The torment would, be, would become more bitter and profound with the maturity of its consciousness. This, in a nutshell, according to Islam, is how we shape our own heaven or hell. In this context, it should have become clear that any social order which promotes irresponsible, disorderly, and evil behavior, no matter how attractive or enticing it may seem to the casual observer, must be rejected. It is all right for the believers to say things and make such claims as are otherworldly in nature. After all, who has returned from the so-called other world to testify to such claims or stand witness against them? Why not be content with a bird in hand than to batter it for two in the bush? This is the materialistic answer to the Islamic philosophy regarding how society should be shaped and on what principles it should be based. The Islamic philosophy encompasses the life here on earth and the life in the hereafter as a continuous flow broken momentarily on death, which in fact is only a transformational stage of one life to another. As against this, the materialistic philosophy visualizes life as only a short, accidental span of consciousness, which drowns into nothingness at the moment of death. Therefore, the social system has only to cater for the needs related to this short span of life. The individual is answerable to the society only as long as he lives, and only for that aspect of life which is visible and detectable that which is hidden in the form of his thoughts, intentions, plans, conspiracies, and evil crimes subtly perpetrated, goes undetected and unquestioned. Again, the crimes against society are only adjudged as crimes when it is established beyond a reasonable shadow of doubt that a crime had been committed. There is the possibility of the miscarriage of justice. In such a social order, the dispensation of such justice is not only superficial and limited, but also becomes conducive to offenses against society. It promotes the pursuit of vested interests and encourages extreme selfishness on the part of the individual. It is also interesting to note that in all godless or semi-godless society, where the concept of answerability after death is rejected entirely or treated so lightly and vaguely as to practically render it meaningless. It is very difficult indeed to find a definition of crime which is fully supported in a sound moral philosophy. It is very difficult to conceive that members of a godless society will be truly convinced of the wrong they commit when they break a law. After all, what is law? It is the word of a despot or an absolute ruler, the decision of totalitarian regimes, or the dictates of a democratic majority. 
to a common man, which of the above should appear to be a just legislation based on sound moral philosophy? What moral philosophy indeed? If he does not owe his existence to any being, or if he has no fear of being questioned regarding his conduct during his earthly life in the life to come, since, according to him, there is no life hereafter. Then, the answers to the questions raised above from his vantage point could be very different from the requirements of a responsible society. He has only this short life to live. He needs society only for his own benefit. He submits to the superior authority of the society only out of necessity. If he can run away with some self-appropriated benefit and snatch a few moments of pleasure here and there while remaining clever enough to escape detection, why not? What so-called moral inhibition could stop his hand? This psychological attitude towards crime begins to develop and become stronger with the passage of time in godless and materialistic societies. This exactly has been mentioned in the Holy Quran as the essence of the materialistic society. The disbelievers declare, In hiya illa hayatuna dunya namutu wa nahya wa ma nahnu bimabu'uthin. There is no life other than our present life. We shall die here and it is only here that we shall live and we shall not be raised again. I.e. we reject the concept of life after death or life elsewhere. Then again, the disbelievers mockingly address earlier prophets السلام, by asking them, وَقَالُوا أَإِذَا كُنَّا عِظَامًا وَرُفَاتًا أَإِنَّا لَمَبْعُوثُونَ خَلْقًا جَدِيدًا They say, when we shall have become bones and turned to dust, shall we really be raised again into a new form of creation? قَالُوا أَإِذَا مِتْنَا وَكُنَّا تُرَابًا وَعِظَامًا أَإِنَّا لَمَبْعُوثُونَ they say, do you really mean to assert that when we are dead and we have become mere dust and bones, shall we indeed be raised again? This, according to the Holy Quran, is central to all evils of a materialistic society. That is why so much stress is laid on the life to come and on a day of reckoning. In one of the traditions, Ibn Mas'ud relates that the Holy Prophet drew a rectangle, and in the middle of it, he drew a line lengthwise the upper end of which portend, portended beyond the rectangle. Across this middle line, he drew a number of short lines. He indicated that the figure represented man. The encircling rectangle was death. The middle line stood for his desires, and the short lines across it were the trials and tribulations of life. He said, if one of these misses him, he falls a victim to one of the others. In another narration, death is described as the terminator of pleasure. Four Characteristics of a Materialistic Society ما سلككم في سقر قالوا لم نكن من المصلين ولم نكن نطعم المسكين وكنا نخوض مع الخائضين what has brought you into the fire of hell? They will say, We were not of those who worshipped God, nor did we feed the poor. 
and we indulge in vain talk with those who indulge therein, and we use to deny the day of judgment. The features of a godless and materialistic society could not have been summed up more precisely and comprehensively. These are 1. Failure to perform worship 2. Failure to feed the poor 3. Indulgence in vain pursuits 4. Denial of a day of reckoning or accountability Before proceeding further, let us remove a confusion which makes it difficult to truly diagnose the state of a society. Even in societies where the belief in God seems to be strong and prominent, and the belief in the hereafter is an integral part of their faith, such evils flourish as cannot be logically conceived to exist among believers of God and life after death with full accountability. The question then arises as to why such societies believe in a God and the hereafter, yet in all other characteristics remain materialistic through and through. The answer to this question is not difficult to find when we examine in depth the, na the nature of the beliefs. In fact, just a remote theosophical belief in a God cannot influence the social behavior of such believers. This is because such beliefs are only academic in nature and is never translated into responsible godly behavior. How can genuine belief in God cohabit with lies? falsehood, extreme selfishness, usurpation of the rights of the others, corruption and cruelty. The concept of God in such societies is only cosmetic, too unreal and airy-fairy to play an active role in the afterlife, and accountability is reduced only to a pale shadow of a distant possibility. At every moment of choice, Immediate interests always dominate and displace any consideration for the life to come. When we speak of materialistic societies, we do not only mean societies which have uprightly rebelled against the ideas of God and life after death. Most theistic and atheistic societies may appear to be diametrically opposed in their ideologies. Yet, for all practical purposes, they have very close similarities. Accountability. The Holy Quran, on the other hand, declares, "Lillahi ma fi al-samawati wa ma fi al-ardi, wa in tubdu ma fi anfusikum aw tuqfuhu, yuhasibukum bihi Allahu, fa yaqfiru liman yasha'u wa yuadzibu man yasha'. Wallahu ala kulli shay'in qadir." Everything which you find in the heavens and in the earth belongs to God. He is the master. He has the right to shape your destinies and your social behavior. Whether you conceal what is in your hearts or declare it, he would bring you to book and question you regarding your evil thoughts and evil doings. Then will he forgive whomsoever he considers fit to be forgiven and punish whomsoever he considers fit to be punished. And Allah has the power to do all that he wills. The Holy Quran adds, وَلَا تَقْفُ مَا لَيْسَ لَكَ بِهِ عِلْمٌ إِنَّ السَّمْعَ وَالْبَصَرَ وَالْفُؤَادَ كُلُّ أُولَٰئِكَ كَانَ عَنْهُ مَسْؤُولًا Follow not that of which thou hast no knowledge. Verily, the ear, and the eye, and the heart, all these shall be called to account. Here, by heart, 
The Holy Quran means the ultimate life force which is behind every human act. Fuad in the Holy Quran means that ultimate decisive will in man which operates the brain as one operates computers. So that ultimate will is the source of all evil and good and it is that will in the form of a new life after death which, in addition to the ear and the eyes, shall be held answerable. Let us now study the features of godless societies at a closer range. It so happens that atheism and disbelief in the hereafter lie vague and undetected in a semi-conscious state. In beliefs, apparently one may continue to subscribe to the existence of God and the belief in the hereafter. But for all practical purposes, they seem to be non-existent. Sometimes, it takes a crisis to bring these concealed realities to one's conscious mind. Sometimes, even generations can live without truly realizing the fickleness and fragility of their beliefs. It is at such times that atheism and disbelief in the hereafter, which had lain undetected and unchallenged, begin to surface. In society already given to indiscriminate and incontinent pursuit of pleasure, the conscious rejection of God and the hereafter brings the process of moral decay and erosion of values to a rapid head. The direction of civilization, regardless of which region of the world or which era of human history, is always from the coarse to the refined. Human basic psychological urges, which work as underlying motive forces of human behavior, remain unchangeable. What changes is the response to those changes. For instance, once hunger can be satiated by eating meat or vegetables, the quality and freshness of meat and vegetable varies. One can have them cooked and seasoned in so many ways or take them raw if one so prefers. As society develops, responses to the fun fundamental urges begin to evolve and become more and more refined and sophisticated. This process goes on and on, though its pace may be determined to a large extent by economic and political factors of the people. But the vanguard of a society always moves on, sometimes slowly, sometimes at a faster pace. When a civilization ripens or matures, over-sophistication and some other detrimental phenomenon begin to reverse the tide of this progressive trend. In decadent societies, the direction is reversed from the refined to the coarse. This is a subject of wide application and requires detailed study. I regret that it is beyond the scope of today's address, but I would like to elaborate a few points. When societies begin to de degenerate or become top-heavy and lopsided with over-sophistication, they begin to topple down and return to the same crude animal answer to their edges. This may not be visible in every social and cultural activity, but it is almost always pronounced in human relation and style in the pursuit of pleasure. A brief study of man in his responses to sex will demonstrate the case in point. Around the basic instinct to reproduce through sexual regeneration, pleasures are associated by nature in the entire animal kingdom. What we find different in human society is a gradual departure from the mere satiation of crude desires to a gradually more refined attitude 
to the fulfillment of animal urges. Nature never desired sex as an ultimate object. The ultimate object has always been reproduction and propagation of species. Sex was only secondary to it. When societies become decadent, the role is almost reversed. The gradual development of the institution of marriage, the rights associated with this institution, and the taboos regarding the interplay of male and female sexes may be considered by a sociologist to be a phenomenon resulting from a natural growth of society and unrelated to religion. But whether the growth is directed from on high or a random phenomenon moving forward by itself, there is no denying the fact that gradually the responses to satisfy the fundamental urge become more and more sophisticated and involved. Growing promiscuousness in male and female relationships is again symptomatic of the same malady. It is not just a per permissive liberal attitude towards sexual relationships, but there is indeed much more that goes with it to change the entire atmosphere of this extremely important sphere of human interest and activity. Debates about the legitimacy of illicitness of such relationships are looked down upon as a thing of the past. Of course, there are many staunch religious-minded groups which go on discussing this issue, but during their discussions on the media, one cannot fail to observe that such old-fashioned, rigidly religious-minded people are being reduced to a minority of insignificance. It is becoming much more fashionable in the West to consider sex as a natural urge which should be responded to without any inhibitions. A traditional coyness, a traditional coyness associated with talk amongst women is becoming a thing of the past. Nakedness, exposure, display, unabashed discussion and confession are considered only as public expressions of truth. Nobody seems to take the trouble to extend the same arguments to other natural human urges. Is it not a natural animal urge, common to humans as well, to possess that which one likes? Is it not, again, a natural animal urge to feel angered and agitated and to release these emotions in the wildest possible terms? A weaker dog would be impelled by the same urges as the stronger, but whereas the stronger would bite, the weaker one would bark at the least. What are these taboos in society? What are those taboos in society, the codes of civil behavior, the concept of decency, etc., which keep interfering with the free expression of natural urges? Why must sex be the only motive force which should be given a free license to express itself without regard to tradition, norms, decency, appropriateness, and the question of belonging or otherwise? What we observe today is a phenomenon which has to be carefully discerned and analyzed. What we call permissiveness in sexual relationship is being expressed in the form of a growing tendency to steal and rob in other areas of human activity and to injure and hurt others. The uninhibited pursuit of pleasure with perverted tastes emanates from the same decadent tendencies which are demolishing the noblest edifices of civilization and returning mode of life back to square one. 
Not only do we observe a prolific growth of rights, taboos and do's and don'ts imposed upon individuals by societies, but also we find an indulgence in romance and courtship playing a vital role in this area. Poetry, literature, art, music, styles, fashions, displays, love of fragrance, and growth of decent and cultivated behavior are all byproducts, if not entirely, at least to a degree, of the same fundamental urge in the form of social responses. A time may come when a future generation begins to rebel against and reject the achievements of society attained after thousands of years of progress. This rebellion may not take the form of a total rejection of everything, yet the discerning eye cannot fail to notice the movement in this direction. Hippieism, Bohemianism, Sadism, growing violence associated with sex and the return of sexual behavior to its original, beastly, crude aspects are but a few examples of the reversal of trends mentioned above. One only has to venture out to watch a group of rebellious, unkempt youths living in their communes to realize what is happening to the younger generation. Filth and stench seems to have replaced cleanliness and fragrance. Immaculate dress have given way to shabby, couldn't care less clothes. Gone are the days when a munich speck on one's attire could cause immense embarrassment. Worn out jeans, especially torn to reveal the flesh underneath, are becoming far more valuable than a new pair of trousers. Of course, not all of society shows such extreme signs of dissatisfaction with the past or traditional heritage. But when a disease sets in, the entire body, the entire body may not always be ulcerated. A few ulcers appear here and there, and these reveal the underlying disease state or malady. Irresponsibility begins to grow. Indiscipline and disorderliness begin to be the order of the day. More signs of decadence begin to surface in different areas of human interests. The pursuit of pleasure in every sphere of life requires change and novelty to provide a greater kick. Things which used to satisfy in the past no longer do now. Smoking and traditional intoxicants fail to provide the kick, which the progressively restless society requires. Drugs of all sorts begin to appear and no measure whatsoever taken to suppress the menacing trend of drug addiction is enough. Yet, the drug addict requires a still greater kick, so a stronger, more addictive and lethal drug like crack is invented. In the area of music, the same trends have gradually set in during the last few decades of this century. A study of the development of music over recent centuries as against the rapid and decibel eruptive changes witnessed during the last few decades of this century provides interesting and intriguing data for comparison. I do not personally know much of music and should be pardoned if some of my remarks are considered alien to the realities of the world of music. My intuition would make me believe, however, that the progressive development of music during the last few centuries in the West has been in the direction of the sublime, exquisite, and noble. Such music brought peace to the mind and heart simultaneously. 
the best music was that which identified and submerged completely with the latent music of human mind and soul. Harmony and peace were the ultimate goals which the evolution of music pursued. Of course, there were passages in the works of great composers and artists which created images of volcanic eruptions, typhoons, thunderbolts, and a sense of commotion which tallied with the external phenomenon of nature. Its memories were stored and preserved indelibly in the memorizing mechanism of life. At times, its climax reached such crescendos as if the whole universe was about to burst apart. Yet, the audience sat motionless, drowning itself in the deluge of music, without moving a muscle or batting an eyelid, until suddenly pin-drop silence fell. Only then would the hall explode into tremendous applause. Even the most powerful music, highly charged with emotion, would not turn the listener into a violent, eruptive, and rebellious being. The message of all music was sublime, peaceful, and harmonious. The best in man was brought out and awakened. The worst was banished. Alas, during the last few decades, we observe a different phenomenon altogether. The ears of the contemporary generation are deafened with music capable of arousing coarse and rudimentary passions of life. A disturbed and restless generation finds itself only attuned to such music as makes them go mad. The more violent the music, the more popular it would be. Again, I should be excused for any observation born out of my ignorance of the world of classical and popular music. But of one thing I am sure, and it is that violence, rebellion, madness, and vandalism, etc., are fast corrupting the noble human faculties. Professor Bloom, who must be credited with some knowledge of Western music, seems to agree with me in his book, The Closing of the American Minds, when he laments the erosion of the sensibilities of, of adolescents of the contemporary age who, in his words, are brutalized by constant exposure to rock music, which he dismisses as junk food for the soul. There are many visible palpable signs of this diseased state of society, which are gradually making the life of man more disturbed and lacking in contentment, dissatisfaction, peace and security. Man may deny the existence of God as he pleases, but he cannot deny the existence of an all-powerful nature which knows well how to punish crimes committed against it. In all materialistic societies, the major factors responsible for progressive growth and proliferation of evil are about the same. Some discussion has already preceded, so we shall briefly enumerate the responsible factors to serve as reminders. These factors are 1. Growing atheism 2. An enfeebling of the belief in a real powerful God who takes life interest in human affairs and the way human beings shape their conduct. 3. A progressive weakness in their beliefs in traditional and ethical values. And 4. A growing tendency to forget the end and to treat the means as ends in themselves. This is a situation which prevails, 
in all the so-called civilized or advanced societies of the world. Slowly, as moral and ethical values continue to wither, they begin to influence the legislative and executive process of governments. When there is no God-made law to be accepted, and absolute ethical values and noble traditions are challenged and defied daily, any legislation to discipline moral behavior also becomes lax and more accommodating. The very platform on which laws pertaining to moral behavior are founded begins to slip away. A comparative study of legislation in this area over the last few centuries would effectively prove the case in point. Gone are the days of Oscar Wilde when homosexuality was considered a crime by a society, which would most mercilessly punish it. Gone are the days of chastity not being just a virtue but a social trust which, if violated, would be brought to account. This softening on crime is no longer seen as alarming. That is the problem. The definition of crime itself is undergoing fundamental change. That which was considered a crime yesterday is no longer so. That which was concealed for fear of shame or reprimand is disclosed and displayed with great pride. If this philosophy was sound and worthy of survival, then all the religious, ethical, and moral philosophies may be considered obsolete and unwanted. They no longer serve any purpose in the contemporary age. The driving force in nature, common to both the animate and inanimate world, is the universal and all-powerful principle of crime and punishment and goodness and reward. In the inanimate world, this principle can be discerned to be operational in the unconscious operation of the laws of nature. In the animate world, evolution, prior to the creation of man, was driven by the same principle which acquired a semi-conscious or semi-dormant state. As one travels through the lowest ranks of evolutionary stages up to man, the journey seems to be from the less conscious to the more conscious. In evolutionary terms, the principle of crime and punishment and goodness and reward is described as survival of the fittest. Throughout the whole evolutionary process, this remains the driving and motive force which constantly pushes evolution forward and upward. It is inconceivable that when this process had reached its consummation in man, the best of creation, and consciousness had acquired horizons beyond the wildest fancies of subhuman fancies, suddenly the principle of crime and punishment should be lifted and rendered obsolete. If there is a higher goal for creation, there has to be some accountability without which the whole exercise would be rendered meaningless. It is extremely surprising that sometimes the greatest of intellectuals and visionaries fail to see an obvious and self-evident truth like this. Such is the case of Albert Einstein, the architect of the theory of relativity, who observes, I cannot imagine a God who rewards and punishes the object of his own creation, whose purposes are modeled after our own, a God, in short, who is but a reflection of human frailty. If there is a God, the Lord Creator whose existence Albert Einstein could not deny, and if all the scientific laws operating in his creation are devised, created and governed by the same creative supreme being, it is inconceivable for him to abandon the ultimate object of his creation 
by lifting the principle of crime and punishment and leaving man to wander in the chaos of undisciplined and unaccountable behavior. As far as the second part of his observation is concerned, it is obvious that he failed to understand not only the role of crime and punishment in the progressive development of creation, but also completely misunderstood the meaning of man having been created in the image of God. Man is created in the image of God not as a perfect model of God on earth. Were that so, the world would become more than a heaven on earth and all human beings would be exactly alike. It is debatable, of course, whether such a place would be worthy of being called heaven or boredom, where there is no variety, change or difference between order, color and hue. Instead, a calm, multitudinous sea of colorless identical drops. That is not the meaning and purpose of man having been created in the image of God. This phrase is rich in profound wisdom and speaks of the potential with which man has been endowed. It speaks of the ultimate noble goal which man must constantly endeavor to achieve. That goal is to be as perfect as man can possibly be by acquiring godly attributes and emerging more like God. It is not a fixed goal which one can reach and then, basking in the glory of having become the image of God, stay put there. As God is unlimited or limitless in his attributes, so every journey to him remains limitless. The perfection in this context only means moving towards perfection from a lower order of things to a higher order of things. God is the most perfect, the most just, the most gracious, ever merciful, all-seeing, all-knowing, the Lord Creator and Master of the Day of Judgment. All praise belongs to God. The Holy Quran says, هو الله الخالق البارئ المصور له الأسماء الحسنى يسبح له ما في السماوات والأرض وهو العزيز الحكيم Allah is he beside whom there is no God knower of the unseen and the seen he is the most gracious the ever merciful Allah is he beside whom there is no God the sovereign the most holy the source of peace the bestower of security, the protector, the mighty, the subduer, the exalted. Holy is Allah, far above that which they associate with him. He is Allah, the creator, the maker, the fashioner. His are the most perfect names. All that is in the heavens and the earth glorifies him, and he is the mighty, the wise. It is such a God who created this universe. He does not suffer from human frailties. The Holy Quran repeatedly asks the believers to reflect on his signs. For instance, تَبَارَكَ الَّذِي بِيَدِهِ الْمُنْكُ وَهُوَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٌ الَّذِي خَلَقُ الْمَوْتَ وَالْحَيَاةَ لِيَبْلُوَكُمْ أَيُّكُمْ أَحْسَنُ عَمَلًا وَهُوَ الْعَزِيزُ الْغَفُورُ الَّذِي خَلَقَ سَبْعَ سَمَاوَاتٍ طِبَاقًا 
ما ترى في خلق الرحمن من تفاوت فارجع البصر هل ترى من فطور ثم رجع البصر كرتين ينقلب إليك البصر خاسئا وهو حسير Blessed is he in whose hand is the kingdom and he has the power to do all that he wills who has created death and life that he might try you which of you is best in conduct and he is the mighty the most forgiving who has created the seven heavens in order one above the other thou cannot discover a flaw in the creation of the gracious one then look again seest thou any seest thou any disparity look again and yet again thy sight will return to the frustrated and fatigued having understood the significance of the words the image of god when one looks back at the entire forces of the creation of the universe from the time of the big bang to the present day the entire journey of creation from the unconscious to the conscious in fact is a journey to become the image of god and to develop in man godly attributes i stop at page 79